ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this Integrated Care Journal Public Policy Projects Open Breakfast. Uh, uh, my name's Stephen Dorrell. I chair Public Policy Projects, and uh, I propose to introduce the session uh, over the next two or three minutes as people join us. Uh, this breakfast, this virtual breakfast, uh, is uh, one of a series we've been uh, conducting over the last two or three weeks, uh, building on uh, the principle that we have established through public policy projects now over 20 years of holding uh, policy discussions over breakfast. In happier times, uh, we provide a full English breakfast to those who come physically uh, to join our discussions. Uh, obviously, in the current circumstances, uh, we've uh, taken our tradition of uh, a good breakfast, and we invite you to provide your own breakfast. Let's bring your own breakfast, but we provide the same, hopefully the same, and I'm sure this morning, uh, the same quality of discussion that we uh, provide uh, when we're able to meet. Uh, we're doing this breakfast in conjunction with a title that within our business we launched a couple of years ago, the Integrated Care Journal. Uh, it's a digital publication and its focus is the important uh, theme of developing a more integrated health and care system, everything from the much publicized intensive care unit in the acute hospital uh, through uh, the rest of hospital services, uh, the primary care system, and critically importantly, and um, the focus of the discussion this morning, uh, the social care support system, the care of the health and care system uh, that provides the foundations for effective uh, health and care interventions. And we're very fortunate this morning to be joined by two people who've uh, are leading national discussion about the integration of social care into a joined up health and care system. Ian Hudspeth is the lead within the Local Government Association on Community and Wellbeing. He's also the leader of Oxfordshire County Council, so he is deeply involved in these issues, both as the leader of a major local authority and as the spokesperson for the Local Government Association in the national debates about uh, social care. And we're also joined by Professor Martin Green, who to anyone interested in engaged in the issues around social care, as they say, needs no introduction as the Chief Executive of Care England. So uh, our, the way we conduct these sessions is that I shall invite Ian Hudspeth to speak to us in a moment, uh, followed then by Martin Green. I shall be watching the chat function on Zoom that we've all, I'm sure, getting used to using. Uh, I shall be watching the chat function as the session goes on. And when Ian and Martin have made their relatively brief presentations, I should be inviting people out of the Zoom function to contribute to the discussion so we can have something that is as close as we can make it uh, to a, a physical discussion uh, where people are contributing their points of view. So if you want to make a contribution, please stick a message up in the chat function 
and we'll be watching you, uh, watching that, and I will seek to bring you in uh, once we've uh, heard from our guests. But I'd like to, if I may, um, the, the final thing to say by way of introduction is that uh, you're, li you're uh, maybe listening, maybe not listening to me at this stage, but I'm speaking just as we get, as we uh, uh, gather the group together. Uh, we shall, we're starting therefore just after eight o'clock and we shall draw it to a close promptly at nine o'clock. So with those words of introduction, Ian, uh, you've been incredibly busy uh, in current events and it's uh, very good of you to join us. Uh, we look forward to what you have to say. Uh, uh, you're extremely welcome in Hudspeth, uh, the lead in the LGA on these issues and the leader of Oxfordshire County Council, Ian. Thank you very much, Steve. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you to Public Policy for inviting me along for this opportunity to talk to colleagues. <coughs> Although we're all sort of working at 100 miles an hour, I think it's important that we still take opportunities like this to understand what is going on currently and the days ahead. So thank you for everybody for joining us so we can actually uh, sort that out as well. Just for clarification, uh, I will be having porridge at the end of this for breakfast and not the full English that uh, you mentioned. <laughs> the other cohort I really want to say thank you to is the um, incredible work that social care and staff are doing at the moment. Without them, we wouldn't be able to be in the situation we're in and it's really important we must lose sight of social care and social care workers. Um, as you said, my name's Ian Hudspeth, I'm leader of Oxfordshire County Council. I'm also the lead for the Community Wellbeing Board at the Local Government Association, which is representative of all councils in England and Wales, and we lead on health, social care, and public health and wellbeing. Through both of these roles, I see the very best of local government and what's going on, and also I see what action is needed from government to tackle the pressures and challenges that uh, effectively make curtails council's ability to actually deliver services to the residents that we su support. That's true in normal times. Of course, at the moment, we're not in normal times. And we need to be making decisions at breakneck speed, multiple issues, and make sure we keep, most importantly, people especially vulnerable safe and well this is complete right across all council services and whilst we're focusing on social care this morning <coughs> just reminds me of all the services that are vital to keep everybody moving and everybody going for instance right at the start of this uh, on the first lockdown we actually had to send the gritters out to make sure the roads were gritted for the next morning so people could get around so there's important things like that so again thank you to all the council staff that are working incredibly hard to make sure that we do have the ability to protect residents um, i think it's important that we all work together and co collaborate and cooperate as much as possible and that means we've got to sometimes say we don't know the answers immediately to the immediate question but we've got to work together to make sure that we are providing those services and i'd just like to say that it's important it's not just sort of one the one council but all councils working together with providers with the nhs to make sure that we're getting the day job done as well 
one of the key things for me that perhaps I'd like to see coming out of this unfortunate situation, and I think it is happening, is raising the profile of social care and recognising how important social care is for the NHS and to make sure that we're all working together in a streamlined, efficient way and not being disparate. So I think that that, for me, is a key thing to come out of it. But at the moment, I think perhaps it is seen as, well, social care is there, but not quite as important as it should do. I think it's key areas that local governments and providers need to work together and actually make sure that we're getting the best response possible for this social care issue. I think one of the uh, significant pressures facing care providers is around the fact that people die in care settings. I know care are doing as much as possible and they need maximum support because that is truly one of those situations that people forget about these things. It's important engagement and communication. I can't say more often that we need to have conversations, understand what is happening to the particular organisations rather than sort of challenging each other because we've got to monitor the scale and severity, particularly of costs and pressures and requirements. I think another thing I'd like to see coming out of this is a sustainable future for social care. We've, over the years, everybody's been saying we need a social, sustainable social care system. And as yet, we haven't quite got there. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to have the announcements of the green paper that's long awaited. But I do hope to see, once we get over this crisis, something coming forward to make sure we do have a sustainable social care situation. I think the Secretary of State's letter on the 28th of March about social care workforce highlighted and acknowledged that social care is uh, key in this situation. And that's good because it's recognition amongst government and the media and the public as well. The workforce and its care workers, care home managers are all associated with the provision of this vital service. And of course, amidst all the stress, one of the key areas that we've got to look at is personal protection equipment. And we've got to acknowledge that it hasn't been as good as it should have been providing security and delivering to care homes and the micro care provider as well, who is often going from multiple journeys and needs a constant supply of PPE. This remains a huge challenge. The LGA, uh, like many others, has been pushing government as hard as possible, a national road role at the highest level, at local level as well, to make sure that we actually get the PPE and more importantly, it's delivered to the front line. Another is testing, which is absolutely vital to make sure that we get testing up and running as soon as possible so that discharges we're aware of, that to nodge for care homes, and more important for staff illness as well, because that is one of the pressures that is facing not just local government, but care homes in particular, because there's pressure on the system there. Over the long Easter weekend, the government came out and said that everything is in place for the PPE and the healthcare system. We've got to make sure that it is there and is, and if it isn't, we've got the challenge. I have to say in Oxfordshire, we did receive a substantial amount of PPE. 
before Easter, and it was distributed across to all uh, care providers. So that was a good start, but we've got to keep on the pressure. It was nearly a month ago on the 17th of March that the LGA, Association of Directors uh, of Adult Social Care and the Care Provider Alliance, jointly set out guidance for the range of pressures as a result of COVID and the kind of steps that councils can take to alleviate such pressures, such as paying on plan, so rather than waiting for an invoice, just actually pay on the plan, sort things out. Recognising the increased pressures, staff sickness, uh, making sure that uh, we've got the ability to get staffing quickly, and that's something that local government can work with other providers to make sure that there is a flexibility, and also care packages. How can we effectively and efficiently make sure care packages get people into the right place at the right time? In normal times, a policy that's four weeks old wouldn't be reviewed. However, as I've said earlier, it's not normal times. And on the 8th of April, uh, the LGA along with ADAS did update the guidance. And the reason there was to ensure that the social care sector has the capacity to face this challenge and make sure that we can immediately discharge patients who are in hospital and sort the bureaucracy out afterwards rather than waiting around. Broadly speaking, three key areas where councils can support providers. That's taking into account the 2021 increase in the national living wage, recognising the pressures that are on the sector, particularly this first month in April, and if staffing issues persist, how can we make sure that we're actually providing assistance to those healthcare uh, care providers? And again, coming back to paying on plans, making sure that people actually have the cash flow if they need it so that they've actually got it. It will mean that if people are doing that, there'll be a payment in March and then a payment quickly in April. That's good, but it is assisting. So councils can play the part. A lot of councils are playing their part and we recognise that. But hearing from care providers, we understand that some councils aren't. And what I'd say there is please contact us because we can help rather than sort of just throwing questions at people. We can really be there to assist. I mean, the word unprecedented has been used an unprecedented amount of times and sort of as an lexic in the lexicon of COVID, but I don't think any of us could imagine what we're facing and what we've got to do. But what binds all of us together is the commitment to support people to stay well and safe. Local government will continue to play its part and working alongside all its national and local partners. Thank you. Stephen, you're on mute, I think. Stephen, you're on mute. Thank you. That's uh, sorry, I shall watch for others as well, but thank you for that. Uh, thank you, Ian, for um, uh, that introduction. Uh, I won't repeat all the points you made, but the, perhaps the key point you made was at the beginning when you reminded us that uh, local government is responsible for a range of services which impact on our capacity to respond uh, to COVID. You drew attention to the, uh, the early on in the, 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 um, the epidemic, uh, the importance of not having 
people slipping on ice on the road and appearing in hospital for that reason. So a joined up approach to public services, integrated public services and social care clearly at the heart of that in these circumstances. Uh, so thank you very much, Ian. I'm going to turn straight, if I may, to Martin Green, uh, because we have a lot of uh, contributions coming in on social chat on the uh, chat function. So, Martin, would you uh, make your presentation, please? Thank you very much, Stephen. And I will pick up on many of the points which Ian raised, uh, which, uh, first of all, to say that this is a really unprecedented situation. And what we have seen is some of the things that we thought weren't possible being able to be achieved because it is a very difficult situation. What I hope we're going to do is we're going to look at what happened when we go through the analysis of this and let's not slip back to a position where social care is the underdog in a discussion between the NHS um, and other parts of the, of the system. Uh, what I want to do is talk a little bit about the fantastic work that's been done on an integrated approach during this crisis. But also, I think this crisis has really underscored some of the fault lines in the system. And there have been some ways in which these have clearly manifested themselves. And I think those are the areas that we need to really focus on when this pandemic is over, if we are going to have a truly integrated health and social care system. It's very interesting. I think some of the fault lines have certainly been about uh, the public perception of social care. And I think there's been a lot of real change in this pandemic, people understanding things better. But at the start of it, I think it was really clear the focus of everybody from politicians to the public to the media was all about the NHS. Now, I understand why some of that was happening, but I think as this pandemic has developed, the important role of social care has been really underscored. And, um, you know, it's in an integrated system. We've got to make sure people don't forget that at the end of the process. I want to just throw out some examples of how that manifests itself. So we had big announcements about extra money for the NHS, politicians talking about whatever it takes. We had then about 1.3 billion put into social care, and I don't underestimate how big that figure is. But then within a day of that, an announcement that 14 billion was going to be wiped off NHS deficits. And I think our start point is as being the sort of poor relation, both in the conversation and in the funding base. Um, I think what this pandemic has really showed though, is that the staff in social care are not only fantastic in terms of their commitment, uh, but also in terms of what they can do. Now, what we've seen is we've seen because of the pandemic and the way in which things like primary care have withdrawn a bit from care services, we now see for the first time the acknowledgement that social care staff are able to do some quite high level things. Now, in the future, what we've got to do is make sure that that is acknowledged properly rewarded that there is a training and uh, competencies framework that starts a process that enables people to move seamlessly across the system and when we do that we'll start moving across the system we need to have the resources that are available to support them moving across two systems uh, if, if we're going to uh, have true integration um, I think I want to pick up as well on some of the practical challenges. 
So, and Ian talked about PPE. Now that has been from the start of this pandemic, a real challenge. It's partly been a challenge because of the distribution, but it's also partly been a challenge because we have not received proper and consistent and clear advice from people like PHE, who uh, uh, should have been giving us real clear advice about the levels of PPE that are used in what situations. That's left both care providers, but also people who use services very confused. It's also led, I think, to the misuse of PPE in some areas. So I think some of these issues about how we get clear and consistent guidance to support social care are really important. And I think one of the things this, um, this pandemic has thrown up is that some agencies and quangos around government have really been nimble and able to respond. And some have been like rabbits in the headlights because their processes and their cultures are not fit for purpose when you have to make instant decisions. So I think there's a, a real important lesson about structure, but there's also an important lesson about culture. One of the things I've been really proud of is the way in which the culture in social care has responded amazingly to this pandemic. So staff who have completely gone the extra mile have done things that were not necessarily what they were um, uh, contracted to do, but have said, my role is to support a person and to enable them to live well, even in the midst of a crisis. So I think um, some of those cultural issues are things that we should really take forward. Um, there's also a big issue about testing, and Ian mentioned that. Uh, now, testing, I think, in this crisis is going to be vitally important. But again, what we have seen is the whole approach to testing is on an NHS model, which is a much more centralised model. If you look at care services, they're in communities. So what we've got to do is we've got to get our testing approach, uh, not about everybody going to a central point, but about testing facilities that are able to be mobile and go to where people are. And that's particularly important in uh, issues around care where if you're going to test, for example, people who use services, by their very nature, they are incredibly frail often, they have multiple health problems, and they have problems with uh, mobility. So it's not going to be possible for them to sit two hours in a car to go to a testing centre. So some of those issues need to be really clearly thought through. And again, what this has exposed for me, this crisis, is that our system is very good at dealing with big, huge, national institutions like the NHS but actually a lot of support is delivered in local communities in local areas care homes are all over the place domiciliary services go throughout local communities the rural the urban and we've got to have systems that understand that better so that's a real learning point from this um, the issue about staffing has been a really um, interesting one and I really want to pay tribute to fantastic care staff um, and also our colleagues in, in local authorities who have just really uh, stepped up to the mark in this situation. But they have not been properly acknowledged, I don't think, in the past in the system. And so we must not let that slip back. There's also a great volunteer army that have come forward. And what we need to do is use that as a resource when this pandemic is, is finished. One of the benefits will be as well, the higher profile of social care and also an economy that will be in absolute crisis for a long time after this. Hopefully we will see that social care jobs will become more attractive 
and we'll be able to deal with some of our long-term staffing issues and the crisis will have facilitated some of that both in terms of the profile but in terms of making people think social care is a good destination for me uh, in a career so I think there are some immediate things that we have all got to address in the crisis but I don't want to lose sight of the long term and there are some gains that we are making now that we must all work together to make sure do not slip back. I do not want this crisis to end with a return to the status quo. This is our moment of paradigm shift and we must all can be committed to making sure that that paradigm shift happens. Thanks. Okay, I've remembered to unmute myself this time. Thank you very much, uh, Martin. Uh, again, you stress the importance of social care and ensuring that we move from a, uh, a tradition where social care has been the undervalued element of the health and care system to one where it's a more uh, recognized and uh, recognized as a partner and able to be effective to deliver its service more effectively than sometimes has been the case in the past. We've had, as you can all see probably on the chat function, a huge number of themes come up in the chat and I'm sure there'll be more. So rather than just going through them one by one, what I was proposing to do is to try to focus uh, a, a number of contributions on a single theme and then go to another theme. And one of the obvious themes here is, what do we, is where are we on the testing process? We've heard overnight uh, that Matt Hancock has committed to giving social care a higher profile in the development of the government's testing strategy. Uh, but testing is, is a word that's been often used and I don't think it's been fully explored. And there are some questions here about uh, who is going to be tested, uh, what is the protocol that's going to apply to testing. And I'd like to focus on that to start with and to bring in uh, Dasos Kurtzides, uh, who I think is on this subject, Paul Stannard on this subject, and also uh, Dr. Prabhakaran. So could I go to, uh, to Dasos Kurtzides first, please? Hi, can you hear me, Martin, or am I still on mute? Yes, I, I, no, we can hear you. I guess, I guess my question is um, is around testing and if I, I get that every staff member has to be tested um, so that we can find out, you know, who is who is COVID positive and whether they should go into work or not. But my, my, my question is around if if they if the, the guess is that 50 percent um, or if the scenario that 50 percent of staff care staff come out as COVID-19 positive, then what will happen at that point? How would we cover? You know that's that that staff shortage. Could could we take the other two and and then I'll ask both Martin and Ian to comment. Uh, so Paul Paul Stannard. Yeah, hello there. Um, yep, my question is is really about um, when we actually find um, the antibody test that allows us to do mass testing. How how are we going to ensure that um, enough people are qualified to be able to administer the test? Um, and secondly, how accurate is accurate in terms of this testing? Because with the Ebola crisis that we were involved with four years ago, 
they had tests that weren't 100% accurate, but they tested people twice with these rapid tests within 15 minutes and got to a 99% accuracy situation. And from our learning, we don't understand why, you know, what, what is the protocol in terms of how accurate is accurate. Okay, thank you. And Dr. Prabhakaran. Um, good morning. Thank you for an excellent discussion. My question was really, you know, we have um, increasing levels of data on NHS staff affected by um, COVID infections, either being off sick and, and the number of deaths, unfortunately. We do not seem to have the same level of data across care provision, either from the care home sector or um, domiciliary home care sector. Um, and there seems to be, you know, looking at various themes around testing and PPE, there are significant gaps in both access to PPE as well as understanding of the guidance and how to apply these. So I do think that there has been this underdog type phenomena where the care sector hasn't been focused on. And increasingly from the hospital, um, patients with COVID positive um, uh, uh, you know, symptomatic and, and just about medically fit for this shot are being transferred to care homes. And how are staff in care homes adequately advised and protected in those situations? Thank you. So Ian, should we look to you first, if, if we may? Okay, well, uh, I've got to start off by saying I'm not an expert on uh, testing and therefore sort of the uh, the question about the accuracy, as far as I'm concerned, it needs to be 100% accurate. So we need to make sure that that data is valid and we will have to train up people to qualify them so they are able to do it. And as Martin said, we've got to make sure that that's not just in a go-to situation. There has to be the ability to, for flexibility for local testing and particularly in local areas. I think it's absolutely vital that if a patient is being discharged from hospital with COVID-19, then that care home needs to understand what it has to do in terms of PPE and has the appropriate PPE. Otherwise, we're just going to end up with people back into the system. So it, but the first question was about if 50% of the workforce um, become uh, affected with it, what does it mean? Well, it means we're going to have real challenges and that's where local governments working with the care providers can provide a support mechanism where if there are some surplus staff somewhere assist because i think this is a situation where we've all got to work together to make sure we're providing it but uh, the care providers are doing that but certainly we've got to work as a enabling rather than anything else i hope that answers some of the questions okay thank you ian uh, marty yeah, I, think, um, where, I mean, I guess the question here, isn't it, is uh, how do we, as tests become more readily available, we're, the antibody test is in the middle distance. The anti, it, it's, testi, it's testing in order to ensure that we have proper protection for staff, uh, pr proper protection for residents, and understanding the, the development of the disease. So we have some consistent statistics so we understand how the disease is developing yeah and, and i think um, for me the the issue about testing would be that we would know the scale of what we were dealing with and also if there were staff who were 
perhaps positive but weren't symptomatic that would then uh, be able to we'd be able to make sure they weren't in contact with very vulnerable people um, I think the issue about the accuracy I'm afraid I have to leave to bigger brains than mine but I think we just have to try and make sure that there is as much accuracy as possible um, in, in the system. Uh, the, the point that was made about data I think one of the things that's a bit infuriating is that um, there is actually a lot of data about social care and lots of large providers collect a lot of data but nobody asks them for it and we've really seen that there is a system which is very very um, focused on data in the NHS but there hasn't been a similar focus on data in social care and we need to rectify that I mean the 21st century is going to be a century that's de developed on data and, and informatics so I think after this we first of all need to think about what data is useful and that, that, that was my other comment the NHS is absolutely packed with data huge parts of it are never used to any purpose so when we have a discussion about what data we are going to collect let's start by saying what data do we need how we're we going to use it and how it's going to inform better practice so i think um, that will be something else that needs to come out of this pandemic a real clear analysis of what data we need who's going to collect it how it's going to be used and how it's going to benefit citizens who use services Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I've now got 40, uh, 14 new messages. Oh, goodness knows how many that I've already read. Uh, Pete Calverley has uh, put in three questions in one. So, Pete, would you like to... Uh, 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 one of which is around testing, which I feel... Yeah, sure. sure. Um, um, thanks, Stephen. Um, so, um, the testing, just a, a bit of the science on the testing, I, I saw an analysis of the testing for antibodies that said if a 95% specific test was used, it would be completely dangerous and unuseful because it would mean that if half the UK population had actually had the illness, 50%, so 30 million, that means one and a half million would be told they were negative or, or they're told that they had the disease when they hadn't. So they'd be wandering around, one and a half million people, feeling they were immune when they weren't, uh, and obviously potentially catching things and potentially passing that on. So until it becomes something like 99% accurate, then they're not going to use an antibody test. Which brings me on to my point is, the Minister's announced this morning about every care home uh, resident and member of staff will get tested, but it's the antigen test that they're using. And if they've had it and got better, they'll be antigen negative and they'll think they've not had it, or they've had it and they've got better and we'll be no better off. So what they need to do is exactly as, as has been said before by, by I think Martin, we need people to have real-time testing in the homes um, to see when they develop symptoms or there's a, a, a new episode within the home that they get, everyone gets tested to see who's got it and whether we're actually dealing with COVID or not. It's no good going through a home that's never had it or that loads of people have had it historically you go in and test and they'll all come back negative because they've all recovered from it. So I think you've got to be, be judicious by the use of the mass expansion of testing because it's got to be used for the right people and targeted at the right people so it can be more help to tell us whether a member of staff needs to self-isolate or whether actually their symptoms are not to do with it or the relative member relative hasn't got it so they don't need to self-isolate or a new outbreak has got is, is due to COVID, not due to anything else. So that's otherwise we're wasting resource that seems to be quite precious. My other, my other point was the PA, uh, PPE. Everyone's struggling to keep 
adequate quantities. That's being pressured even more by Public Health England and the other both representative bodies raising the bar as to who should be wearing it and when. And then suddenly, all over the country, we're getting local decision makers and local health boards in Scotland and CCGs and local authorities setting their own standards of explanation about who should be wearing what and what type of PPE, which are completely at odds and even higher than the latest guidance only issued a few days ago by Public Health England. And they're actually getting quite aggressive about it. We're not going to send any people to you. We're not going to send an ambulance. Uh, GPs are coming in. District nurses are coming in separate from local authorities. And they're saying their own interpretation that we should be doing, which is upsetting staff because they have the nurse has when she comes in or the ambulance person. So I think uh, in terms of ADAS and the LGA, it'd be helpful if everyone stuck to the guidance that all the experts are doing rather than made their own guidance, which is happening everywhere, I assure you. And on a more positive note, I do think we've had over 300 to 400 block contracts agreed within a week of the announcement that we need to get people out of hospitals and free up capacity. And the relationships with the agreeing those contracts were fantastic. It got done speedily. Um, I sort of contrast that with the last 20 years where we've all been trying to get discharged beds, intermediate care, step-down beds, and it's been like pulling teeth and it doesn't happen. And in the end, hospitals remain full because no one's actually procured capacity. And I just hope with a great precedent that's been set by this awful pandemic that actually something comes out of it with the better relationships and processes that gets us block contracts for winter beds to clear up capacity for the NHS during normal times. Thank you, Pete. Uh, I'm going to ask Patricia Hewitt to come in on that theme because in particular on the point about fragmentation and the importance of developing a, a, a single message of how uh, PPE and indeed other issues uh, need to be addressed, the testing issue. Uh, Patricia. Thank you very much indeed, Stephen, and thank you to Ian and Martin and, and others. Really, really helpful insights. The thing that's struck me and worries me hugely that if I look at the Norfolk and Waverley system and I'm the independent STP chair here, I know that my um, RCPG accountable officer has got complete line of sight down into our GP practices and of course into the trusts and she knows day by day by day how many staff are off sick, what the patient and clinical pressure is, what their need for PPE is and so on. But I don't, I may be wrong here, but I don't get the impression that local government has got the same near real timeline of sight into social care. And indeed, it would be really hard to, given how fragmented that market is. So I'd be very interested in um, comments um, from local government colleagues on that and how they see the working between local government and the NHS. Um, I've been, you know, I think it's been an issue since the creation of STPs and integrated care systems that from the NHS centre, they are very much seen as NHS things with local government as a partner rather than being genuinely about the entire system with social care and NHS and other aspects of local government, as Martin rightly said, being absolutely, uh, sorry, Ian rightly said, 
um, being absolutely key partners in a in a common purpose. Ian, would could you respond to uh, Pete and to Patricia? Uh, absolutely. Um, well, I think that uh, first of all, the sort of picking up on Patricia's point there about the understanding what's going on in the lo local area, it is difficult because of the fragmented nature of care providers. And it is an opportunity for local government to step into. And when I say fragmented, local government does know who the care providers are in the area, but it's somehow harvesting, as Martin said, harvesting the appropriate data, not just data for data's sake, so that we can actually then have meaningful uh, uses for it and provide uh, alternatives. Um, your second point about the NHS seeing sort of uh, the integrated care system part of the NHS, I think I'd have to agree there. I think that I see it as being the other way around, that we should really sort of have the NHS primary and social care really working together at that very close working relationship which then allows the acute sector to what the acute sector can do um, by itself. And we do need a completely flow through because the resident, the patient, they don't care who they're dealing with. They just want to get through the system. They continue to have blockages about questions coming. Uh, we've got to pass this over to... That does have to be done locally because a local system can really understand what local needs. In Oxfordshire, it's going to be completely different to London or Cornwall. The local care system, which then allows primary care and social care to be fully integrated, and thus that will be working on the basis of people not entering into the acute sector. And that is where the real gain can be if we can sort of make sure by providing good primary care and good social care people don't need to get into the acute sector and that would be a real win uh picking up on pete's points um yes i mean real-time testing has got to be the way forward and he makes a very positive uh, comment about the 100 percent testing and the if it's 95 percent and how scary when you actually make those um listen to those figures it does make you realize how important we do need to get to that 100 percent testing Guidance, again, I think that we do need a standard guidance across the board. And actually, that's got to come from the say, if you're working in this situation, in this uh, PPE, and then we can actually understand how to de deal with it. Because we there shouldn't be two-tier PPE, as far as I'm concerned. You either need the appropriate PPE, but it's in what situation. So that's very clear. Good to hear about the block. Uh, sometimes I think that we do need challenges for us all to get down and what we've been talking about for many years, we all know the solution, we all understand it, but we all sort of have to, it's only when we get a crisis like this that we really do focus on the detail of delivery. So good that you're getting that. And I hope that we can continue that spirit after the crisis is over and actually make sure that we're all working together. Martin. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the points that Pete made about testing are well made. 
uh, we've got to make sure that we've now won the battle about getting testing, but we just don't want it to be testing for testing's sake. It has to be done in an intelligent way and using the testing so that it really enables us to understand what's going on and support people appropriately. Um, the issue about PHE, I think there is a fundamental problem here. You know, how difficult is it for PHE to... in Cumbria had issued guidance on um, issues around PPE in care homes. Uh, this happened a day after PHE was supposed to issue guidance. So another example of fragmentation in the system. So I think what we should really be clear about is from this, who is accountable, responsible for what? And there should be some very clear messages and they should be delivered by one agency and everybody should say that is the default position. So I think that is a real, a real challenge when we've got agencies that are supposed to be leading on it and are not very effective. Um, I, I think the points that Patricia made were very well said about the fact that the informatics and the line of sight is much easier uh, in some of the NHS and the STPs. Um, but I think we've got to then think about how we make sure the line of sight gets clearer in social care as well. And some of that, I think, Patricia, might be helped if we get proper data collection and we collect what we need to collect so that everybody's on the same page. And again, I think another thing that should come out of this in the future is we should sit down, identify what data is required, not just collect data, and then uh, hopefully we'll have that better line of sight in social care that you have in, uh, in NHS organisations. Uh, Paul Stannard has raised a hand and has also contributed a couple of times on the chat. Uh, uh, and uh, Paul, can I bring you in uh, to make your point, please? Yeah, sorry. I, I, I listened a lot to the testing. We, we've analysed nearly 20 antibody tests uh, um, because there was a lot of problems around um, the accuracy thing. And um, because we've been involved in this right back to the Ebola, crisis you know there's not one single test pcr test centralized test nothing is 100 percent even even because um, of our, our genome our, our entire bodies you cannot get a testing regime that is 100 percent but what you can do is if you understand the natural incidence of who has it who hasn't got it who's immune who's asymptomatic you get control and the bit i don't understand is with the ebola crisis it was fine for us to test people twice within 15 minutes with an antibody test to get to 99% accuracy. So why wouldn't we do that? Even if we find out 50% of the people are out there or any one of those situations, we are in a 50% better, better situation than we were how we are now. Uh, Pete, do you want to reply to that? Uh, so I've been following the, um, yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you. The only thing is, of all the testing they've done for antibodies in the UK, which have been, as you say, they range from 80% specificity or sensitivity up to 95 plus. They've rejected them all because of the point I made, which was you give people false, um, false positives, which means that you think they've got the illness or that they've had the illness when they haven't, 
or false negatives, uh, telling them they haven't got the illness when they have. Um, and they say the scale of it to do mass testing gives you with all those awful um, counterintuitive things whereby you end up with lots of people going around thinking they're immune when mm. they're not. Um, so the government aren't prepared to buy. They've ordered three and a half billion tests or whatever it is, and they've rejected them all and decided not to use them because they aren't good enough. So while I understand we want to do something, and I think the idea of double testing, if that actually gets rid of the reason why you get a 5% false negative or false positive, then maybe double testing is the answer. But at the moment, all this, all this work on all the different types of antibody tests, that there have been sent tens of different tests and manufacturers from China, um, in the end, aren't, um, they're not good enough and the government's not prepared to use them. But one thing is, if everyone's noticed, the South Korean issue, where about 150 people are supposed to have caught it twice, that could well be that the first test was wrong. And while they said they'd had it, they hadn't. And now, all the second test was wrong. And where they'd actually had it, uh, they hadn't had it. Therefore, they thought they were clear. They've caught it now, and now they're testing positive. So I think that just perhaps gives us some sort of idea about the danger of testing with something that isn't specific or sensitive enough. Okay. I'm going to try and move the conversation on. We've got just over, just under a quarter of an hour left. Uh, one of the things we haven't really touched on very much in this conversation so far is the, the funding relationship, in particular between central and local government and the difference between funding of social care in this crisis and the funding of the NHS. Judith Blake has, uh, was on a call yesterday. Judith, is, could uh, you make your point and then I'm going to go to Eddie Coombs who's on a similar point so Judith hey, Stephen I'm sorry I'm just trying to move my screen I've come to the sun shining on it um, thank you for bringing me in I'm um, leader of Leeds City Council it's good to see people on the call that I haven't seen for for a long time and um, a really good discussion um, so um, obviously the parity of steam issue right across the board is one that we're very conscious of and that um, has been in play for, for many, many years, and it has really come to the focus um, throughout this process. And um, it, it really has, it is a scandal um, the, uh, around the whole issue of PPE, and I think that will warrant a really close investigation. Um, some of the private uh, providers um, have told us that, they're provide, that the, the, the companies that provide them with PPE had been instructed that the priority for the PPE was the NHS and actually had their supplies reduced as a result. Hopefully today's announcement will go some way towards um, us being able to implement the, the guidance that has come out. It's confusing, it's come out day by day um, and uh, has been extremely um, difficult. So at the beginning of this, in local government, we were told um, that we had to get a step up, do what we do, do what we do brilliantly, I think, which is being acknowledged in a whole range of areas across local government, and that cost was not to be an issue to stop us doing what we have to do. Um, unfortunately, um, yesterday, we were on a few, um, of, um, a cross, cross party from the LGA, we're on a call with the ministers, and I'm afraid the tone has changed, picking up on a, on a conversation last week with other ministers. And yesterday we were told, and I quote, um, that um, it isn't um, an open checkbook, 
um, that um, it's very clear that local government will have to share the burden with government. Um, in a situation where, um, as Ian knows, so many of us are absolutely strapped for cash in the first place, um, you know, there should be a recognition that actually the cuts to public services across the piece have been a, a mistake and put us in a weaker position for being able to deal with this. I think it's really important that everyone on the call um, stands up and just makes the case for um, proper sustainable funding for social care and um, coming through local government. And if we don't do that, I'm very fearful when we start to come through, uh, through this, um, that we'll be again on the back foot. Um, the other points I just make in terms of the other parts of the conversation is I think the areas that have really moved forward in um, terms of integration of health and social care will be the areas that come through this um, the strongest. Um, and there's, uh, you know, in those areas, there's absolutely no reason why um, every part of the system doesn't know exactly what is happening in each part. But I just would make the plea, it's all very well collecting data, but the most important thing about data is how it's analysed and ultimately how it's used. And in some parts, we still have problems where people are reluctant to share data. I think this is a moment in so many areas where we can actually start to move forward in this, um, in this agenda in a real recognition of how, if we work together closely, we can really start to make the difference we need to make. Uh, two points, if I may say so, both of them of huge importance around uh, the funding of this and also around the importance of, if you're going to deliver integration, integration is built around information sharing and that common understanding of the problem. And I strongly agree uh, with that point. I'm going to ask Eddie Coombs to come in and then Daniel Casson, and then I'm going to ask for closing comments from both Ian and Martin. So, Eddie. Thank you, Stephen. Um, I'd just like to um, echo, I guess, the front end of what Judith is saying regarding funding and culture. Um, you know, that, you know, that there are not many, many providers that are in communication with each other, sharing um, examples um, and experiences at the front end. And it's, it's very clear that the, uh, the, the, the delivery of front end funding that the government has set the money aside to provide for, for councils to do is not coming through either quick enough or in any sort of sufficient um, um, method. Um, I've been on calls with at least two council leaders where, you know, it's taken a number of weeks to get to the point where actually some money is starting to flow through. Um, and whilst the council leaders have got the best intentions and they want to move things forward, and, you know, I, I think that sort of really resembles the uh, the paper that was released um, by the LGA and ADAS um, to councils about how to build positive relationships with the market. You've then got the adult social care representation on those calls, still with the same culture of, well, it's public money, um, but not actually acknowledging that that public money needs to be used to enable providers to deliver the right, you know, the, the, the right level of um, 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 quality as well as safety for both staff and, and for residents. Um, there's one comment I noted about 
just on the chat group here talking about Tesco, for example, supplying um, all of their people. You know, you know the, the reality is, um, yeah, the government is trying to get PPE equipment out, but the, the level of equipment that's coming out is fairly minimal. And, and, and generally what they're trying to do is to manage quite a s small supply in the system. So providers are having to top up. I mean, two of our most complex services, uh, which deliver nursing dementia, plus other nursing-led services. Um, you know, we've spent, uh, this is just across 100 bed um, sample um, on two sites. We've spent over 10,000 pounds in PPE equipment uh, in the last two and a half weeks. Um, so, you know, the, the level and the need is very high. And I, and I think the reality here is the culture's got to change, um, um, which, you know, which needs to drive the funding, but also this integrated approach everyone's talking about. You know, the two need to go down so far. Sorry, Pete is uh, got a million pounds so far on PPE on top of um, what the government's giving us. I guess culture change, in truth, of course, is a two, it involves two sides in the discussion. But let's not get the, the, the requirement for a change in the way uh, the different elements of the system relate to each other is at the heart of the integration debate. I uh, we all have to recognize that. Uh, final contribution from Daniel Kasson, and then I'm going to go, as I said, to Ian, and then I'm going to go to Martin. So, Daniel. Dan, uh, good morning, Stephen. Thank you very much. This is just a point about... No, you've gone back on mute, Daniel. Ah, there, there you go. go. So this is a point about the lack of coordination we're seeing, in that it's taken about three to four weeks for the Care Providers Association to get uh, NHS England, the DHSC, the LGA, ADAS and CQC to agree on a way of data collection and three to four weeks it's still just coming together so uh, hopefully a letter's going out today uh, with all their logos on to actually agree how we don't overburden providers at the moment with how we collect data and how that data is being used. So it's been a real journey to get everyone working together and like, like Martin was saying the central coordination that we're starting to see it's the legacy that we should take take forward for this, but it's been a real hard struggle to get everyone talking together. So it's more of a comment than a question at the moment, Stephen. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. So Ian, can I ask you to, to wrap up the, 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 a, a wide ranging session? Uh, well, first of all, thank you to everybody. It's been a really fascinating session and insight. Picking up on Judith, you know, absolutely we were told right at the beginning, by government, it was less than four weeks ago, I was with the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State, they said money will be provided. We've got to make sure that that commitment is maintained. And it's not just the 1.6 billion for uh, local government, there's the 1.3 that's going to CCG, we should be commissioning that as well and not getting that diverted. So I'll be keeping the pressure on that. PPE, we've heard, you know, this is something that's a real major challenge to us. It's vital there's some innovative things a uh, polythene bag manufacturer in Whitney just down the road from me now is starting to produce aprons so that's how systems can adapt and we placed an order already and hopefully we'll have them by Friday testing as I said at the beginning when we talked about it I'm not an expert on it and I bow to everybody else's better knowledge but we do need to have the ability for care homes to have testing but I want to finish on a po positive note, and that is the fact that 
this is an opportunity for us all to raise the profile of social care to make sure everybody aware is the fantastic job everybody does in social care about supporting the vulnerable and the residents of right across the country thank you very much thank you Ian Martin thank you Stephen um, well likewise I think it's been a really useful discussion uh, I just do want to pick up on some of the stuff about PPE and some of the things that Judith and Pete and also Eddie mentioned which is that there's enormous cost on things like PPE now and Pete mentioned a million uh, I, I'm questioning where the hell the competition and markets authority is in all this they're quite happy to stomp all over care providers but they've been absolutely nowhere when we've seen huge increases in price because of uh, supply and demand issues so I think one of the things that's come forward from me is about all these quangos that are around government we need to take a long hard look as to whether or not they're useful needed or delivering what we actually need in, in a crisis and then from that do we need them at all into the future um, uh, but like, um, like uh, Ian, I want to end on a positive note. I think one of the things that's really come out is the increase in the profile of social care. People are starting to realise how absolutely vital it is in local communities. And also the, um, the thing we're always being told is protect the NHS. Well, the best way any government can protect the NHS is by investing in social care. And so we need to really capitalise on the things that we've delivered. And I just want to say what an amazing uh, system it is in terms of the people who've delivered in every bit of the social care sector. And what we must do is when this crisis is over and the inevitable um, discussion happens about what we needed to do in the future, we cannot slip back to the status quo. It's incumbent on all of us to champion social care, to put it in its rightful place, and to make sure that the allocations of funding are done on the basis of outcomes and needs, not on the basis of which organisation has the higher public profile. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you to Martin, thank you to Ian, and thank you to all our contributors. I'm sorry I haven't been able to bring in everybody who's contributed on the chat, uh, but I do want to draw the session to a close with one contribution on the chat that I think is genuinely newsworthy, or maybe it isn't anymore, but would have been in uh, times past. And that's from Andrew Spooner, who as a GP uh, says, the social care response has so far been excellent and unheralded. It hasn't always been true that it's been uh, the view of general practice. And if, we've, if that's progress, if that's a, uh, thank you, Andrew, for the comment. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a comment that should be shared more generally around social care. Thank you to one and all for your contributions. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.